Gina Della from Pella. Get up to five years no interest, five months no first payment, and 5% same-day order savings at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. 555's been extended, but only through October 31st. See PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us on kind of a gloomy Friday afternoon. But, of course... Everything is fine when the Packers win. I've always said that the most difficult day to do a spoken word talk show in this market is that the day after a Packers loss. And I do admit that, uh, for example, yesterday evening as I was watching that game and I saw the Packers fail to score with a couple minutes left and then you watched Arizona drive the ball the length of the field, I was thinking, huh. It's going to be a long day on the talk show simply because if if the Packers lose, it doesn't matter how compelling you are. It doesn't matter how interesting you are. People are just kind of in a sort of a down, crabby sort of mood. But, of course, that that became academic when uh, just a, a play that you just absolutely don't understand. Uh, the quarterback throws it to a receiver who's not looking for the ball, and the Packers defensive back makes an absolutely great play, a dynamic play, saves the game, wins the game, and the Packers now have 10 days off. Uh, to get ready for their next game. I, I, I said this to Steve, and I, I do repeat this. I, I, look, all's well that ends well. Great game last night. I appreciate that. Aaron Rodgers was great. The game plan was great. The defense, I think, played extremely well. I, I just, and I've said this before, I have a beef with the NFL and these Thursday night games. Football is an incredibly violent game. And you, you just, it takes time for these players to be able to recover and I I guess I'd be interested in seeing the numbers but it it seems to me these Thursday night games that you look at a lot of times they are not particularly well played they're very sloppy games because the teams you know haven't they've only had a couple days to prepare on top of that it always seems to me that while injuries are a part of of the can happen at any time I get that these these games where you have to turn around and play with just a couple days break, it seems to me it always is much, much, much more likely to lead to injuries. And, I mean, last night you saw a couple of catastrophic injuries. I mean, the Packers up and coming, you know, tight end Robert Tanyan. I haven't seen formal results yet, but they're afraid he tore his ACL, which is what happened to Bakhtiari. And if so, he's probably going to be out for a year, perhaps, if that's the fact the case. You had a couple other injuries where you had the players rookie running back, you know, who got hit in the knee. He's carted off. Um, you have the Arizona player who was carted off. I, I Look, I understand that injuries happen all the time. I just think that it's inviting trouble when you expect these players to turn around and play a game so quickly and it, it guess it's one thing I know that they've always had Thanksgiving games and and maybe that's inevitable that you're going to have the games on Thanksgiving but these regular Thursday night games I, there's a lot of money to be made understand all that but I just think it's it's bad for the health of the players which ultimately means it, it's bad for the, the games one of the uh, you know one of our texters was saying well maybe if they have the Thursday night games it should only involve teams that had bye weeks the week before I don't know logistically whether or not that makes sense or you could do it but it does seem to me to be a pretty decent I- idea that you want to you know you want to give teams you don't want to make teams have to turn around and travel and play and risk 
risk injury with just a couple days notice. But I'm not I'm not the guy that makes those decisions. Roger Goodell gets paid $128 million a year to do that, so he can decide. All right. I want to start off. Story in the Journal Sentinel. Um, this is a proposal that is being floated by West Dallas Mayor Dan Devine. And I want to say at the beginning, I, I don't necessarily have an issue with this, but I want to share this story with you, and then I want to ask you, If you see what I see, which I think is a fundamental flaw in this problem. So here's the story. We all know, of course, that reckless driving is a huge problem in this area. People are dying on a regular basis around here. You have people, adults, lots of times it's juveniles driving stolen cars, driving 90 miles an hour. The cops try to pull them over. The the standard pattern now is we're just going to run from the police, see if we can get away. And if we hit and kill somebody, well, that's, that's too bad. And so everybody agrees that reckless driving is a problem. Nobody's been willing to really, in my opinion, address the problem, which is taking the car thefts and taking the the car thieves and the people that run and putting them in jail and prison for lengthy periods of time. But anyhow, here's here's what, what West Dallas is considering. Headline, reckless drivers in West Dallas could face fines of up to 50 times higher, up to $10,000 if the mayor's proposal is approved. Come 2022, motorists pulled over for reckless driving in West Dallas could face fines that are up to 50 times higher under the annual city budget proposed by West Dallas Mayor Dan Devine. The idea, Devine said, is to charge reckless driving offenders under a different area of the Wisconsin state statute, using a law against negligent operation of a vehicle instead of reckless driving. Driving. The difference in penalties is stark. The reckless driving charge carries a maximum fine of 200 bucks. Devine said a motorist convicted of negligent operation of a vehicle, however, could face a fine of up to $10,000. I've been receiving a lot of complaints about reckless driving from just about every part of the city, Devine said in email. I've also seen it myself way too frequently out in the community, not only on highways, but on side streets. The goal, he said, is to reduce reckless driving in the city. Ideally, people would just follow traffic laws, but if not, I hope the larger fine will get their attention. All right, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, you you will never find me objecting to greater penalties and things of the like, but the mayor of West Dallas, his idea is let's figure out a different way to charge reckless drivers so we can fine them up to $10,000. What is the fundamental flaw with that argument, if any? 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do you see, as I do, a fundamental flaw in the West Dallas mayor's idea, let's jack up the fines for reckless driving from $200 to $10,000? 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So Dan Devine, the mayor of West Dallas, says, "Look, we we we've got too much reckless driving going on here. So here's what I want to do. We got to explore ways we could charge these reckless drivers. Right now, the maximum fine is two hundred bucks. Let's let's charge them in a different way. So the maximum fine could be ten thousand dollars. What's the fundamental problem with this? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's start with Dave in Appleton. Hi, Dave. You're on WTMJ. Good morning, Jeff. The the fundamental problem is no one's paying the $200 fine, and definitely no one's going to pay the $10,000 fine. But, I mean, and if they don't pay it, what? 
I mean, this is why, you know, and I agree 100% with you, we need to take the car, we need to put people in jail, in prison, and make it really hurt so we change behaviors. And I am a big fan of build more prisons. Right. So you don't think, you don't think if giving somebody a $5,000 fine that they have no intention of paying, you don't think that that's going to change behavior at all? No, not at all. Okay, I thank you. No, no, I get it. I, 855-616-1620. Mike and Franklin. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Well, to kind of build off of what the last guy was saying, I mean, most of these cars are, you know, stolen and taken by low-income individuals that don't have the ability to pay for the fine. So even if they, you could do it, you're probably, you know, not going to catch them in the first place. They're letting them go. And then if you're going to find them, are you really finding them? Or are you finding the owner of the car who did already got his car stolen? Well, right. And if even if you catch the right person and you find them and they either, to your point, don't have the ability to pay or don't have any desire to pay because, I don't know, they're 15 years old and they've just stolen their eighth right. car. Well, yeah. Okay, thanks. No, I, okay, that's, that's a fair point. Let's talk to Mike and Brown Deer. Mike, you're on WTMJ. What, what, if anything, is the problem with what the mayor's talking about? Well, I'm kind of uh, agreeing with everybody else. Uh, I, I see it slightly different, but I think it's the same people that are doing it, they're, they can barely uh, pay the $200 fine, so I doubt that they'll be paying the $10,000 fine. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think that uh, locking them up is actually the answer all the time. Uh, we've been locking people up for how long, and we still have issues. So I think we need to get more as to the why and uh, start sorting things out and figuring out why this continuously happens because I think if we lock them up, the, it's going to continue to happen as well. Well, but that's, uh, only a, that's, a, that's an interesting thought, though. But but I mean, lately we haven't, but we don't we don't lock up people for for car theft and things like that as a general rule, and and it's just been increasing. I mean, what what, what you talk about the why? And I'm just I'm, I'm legitimately curious. Why? Why is it when you've got, for example, the the other night, a thirteen, a fourteen, and two fifteen year olds that are out at one o'clock in the morning stealing cars? What, what's the what? What's the why to you as to why they're doing it? That's the thing. I think we need to get to why are they out? Why? Why is this happening? Yeah. And I I, I have no idea. Okay. And I think that's uh a great uh, question. Okay, fair enough. Thanks to call. I, I mean, I've got a, a bunch of ideas. There's no parental involvement, and the parents don't care, and the kids have been raised with no sense of right or wrong, and and no fear of consequences, which is where it comes in. But no, I, I all the callers are, are absolutely correct. This is the first thing when I saw it. I don't mean to pick on the mayor because I I think it's fair to have a conversation about you know what what we need to do about reckless driving. But let's let's be real world about this. As a general rule, and there are probably a handful of exceptions, but as a general rule, what are some of the common characteristics that we find when you hear these stories about, hey, car driving 95 miles an hour, blowing through the red light, leading the cops on a police chase? What, what, what is, what is it? Is it, it's not the typical West Dallas resident. It, it's not the suburban soccer mom that, that's doing this. What it is, is either sort of like career criminals who have, for example, stolen the car because they want to use it for, you know, other criminal activity, or it's multiple car thieves, lots of times who are kids who have done this over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, and they keep getting put back on the streets. I, you, you can find, you, you look at, my guess is, the large group that are, we're really doing the type of reckless driving that we're, we're talking about, you know, the stuff that we're really 
really trying to get at, the 85 miles an hour and the 20 mile an hour zone, the blowing through the red lights, etc. You, you find them $200, they're not paying it. You talk to the cops, they'll tell you that the people, you, you give them the ticket, they crumple the ticket up, they throw it away. You know, most, I don't want to say most, a good portion of the people that are doing this don't have driver's licenses. They don't have insurance. They're not responsible. They're just out there doing whatever the heck it is that they want to do. So whether you make the fine $200 or $2,000 or $10,000 or $10 million, I would argue that a huge chunk of the people, the chronic people, responsible for the problem they have they have no they have no ability to pay this and they have no desire and intent to pay this so you can find them 10 million dollars they're, they're not going to pay you can find them ten thousand dollars they have no intention of paying i mean so i do i oppose it in theory no but to me this is just one of these kind of feel-good things the only way that you're going to get reckless driving under control is to really have consequences and to me those consequences are, number one, if you're the reckless driver owns the car, you take the car. Most of the times, I don't think that's going to be the case. It's going to be stolen cars, which means what you do is you take the person who's responsible for the reckless driving and you put them in the house of correction. Or, you know, you wave them into adult court. Maybe you send them to prison as a way of trying to teach people that there's consequences. But giving somebody a $10,000 fine if they have no desire, to, no ability to pay and just refuse to do it. I mean, it's like saying we're suspending your driver's license. Okay, we've suspended your driver's license. You think that stops anybody? from driving. Unfortunately, since there are no consequences, it doesn't. I applaud discussions about ways we can get serious on stopping reckless driving, but just increasing fines, to me, without coupling them with we're sending people to prison and stuff like that, is just it, it's just lip service. At least that's the way I see it. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The headline in the Wall Street Journal. U.S. in talks to pay hundreds of millions of dollars to families separated at the border. The government is considering payments of $450,000 per person affected by Trump administration's zero-tolerance policy in 2018. Let me explain, and this is the way the Wall Street Journal reports it. The Biden administration is in talks to offer immigrant families that were separated during the Trump administration around $450,000 in person in compensation, according to people familiar with the matter, as several agencies work to resolve lawsuits on behalf of parents and children who say the government subjected them to lasting psychological trauma. Uh, the U.S. Department of Justice, Homeland Security, and Health and Human Services are considering payments that could amount to close to $1 million a family, though the numbers could shift. Most of the families that cross the border illegally from Mexico to seek asylum in the U.S. included one parent and one child. Many families would likely get smaller payments depending on the circumstances. The ACLU has identified about 5,500 children separated at the border over the course of the Trump administration. The number of families eligible could potentially be smaller, etc. At, okay, so what are we talking about here? Well, as part of the so-called zero-tolerance enforcement policy, 
during the Trump administration, immigration, immigration agents separated thousands of children ranging from infants to teenagers from their parents at the southern border in 2018 after they had crossed illegally from Mexico to seek asylum in the U.S. In some cases, families were forcibly broken up with no provisions to track and later reunite them. The lawsuits allege that some of the children suffered from a range of ailments. So, I mean, here's here's essentially what happened. The Trump administration, in an effort to try to get control of the borders, was telling people, do not come in. You know, And they were trying to discourage this. So what happened is, Family comes in and you have what they would do is they would take the the adults and they would charge them criminally. The kids would not be charged criminally, but the charge kids would be separated with the idea that they're going to try to find a way to send them back to where they came from, feeling that we have to try to discourage this. We're trying to keep people from coming into this country illegally. So now you have the ACLU and some groups are saying this was this was cruel, this was inhumane. Um, what we need to do is we need to compensate those people who came in illegally um, because the kids would have been traumatized by being separated from their parents who came into this country illegally. Follow me? And the number that is being thrown around is up to $450,000 per child who was brought into this country illegally by their parents who came into this country illegally. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, this isn't just the Wall Street Journal reporting this. New York Times, family members separated at border may each get up to $450,000. New York Post, White House considering payments of 450 grand per person to immigrant families separated at the border. Washington Post, Biden administration is negotiating financial compensation for families separated at border by Trump. Okay, 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 450, up to $450,000 apiece, maybe up to a million dollars Per family that came into this country illegally and had the kids separated from the adults. What do you think about your tax dollars being spent in that fashion? 855-616-1620. We discuss after the news. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not making this up. If, if you will recall, in, in, as part of the efforts to try to deter illegal immigration, the Trump administration said, look, here, here's the deal. You come into this country illegally, you're going to be arrested. All right, so what happens? You come into this country illegally, you bring your kids along with you. Well, what would happen is they would detain the adults, and the children would be, yes, they, they would be separated because you can't put the kids in the, the jails. And so what they would do is they would be sent to government shelters while the, the mothers and fathers were jailed to face prosecution for entering the country illegally. You, you couldn't put the moms and dads in, the, in the, the, the shelters. So that was the process that they used. And it led to all these headlines about how you have the, these kids that have now been separated from their parents and how terrible this is without, of course, paying attention to the fact that the reason this all happened is because you had the mom and dad or mom or dad who came into this country illegally in the first place. But now Joe Biden is seriously take, talking about taking hundreds of millions, if not billions, of our tax dollars and spending it up to $450,000 per kid to reward 
this behavior and compensate the children for the trauma they suffered when mom and dad came into this country illegally in the first place and were then separated for prosecution. 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I swear, every day you see these stories and it, it just, it is mind boggling to me. Do you mean, in what country in the world could you commit a crime? And that, that's what it is. You enter this country illegally, that is a crime, and you somehow manage to walk away after you've committed the crime with, I don't know, upwards of a million dollars. 855-616-1620. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Mike. Yeah, it's absolutely ludicrous. Um, I'm glad you compared that to other countries. There is not one other country that that would ever happen in. Um, it's a shame that that had to happen like that, but the immigration policy was, or the, immig- the situation at the border was out of control. Yeah. It's probably even worse now, and it's probably going to the law and become a millionaire. Well, well, the, the thanks to call, Mike. I'm sorry, your cell phone's cutting out a little bit. But yeah, that's. I mean, you you really have to break this down to think about it. You you want to. We you know we were talking in the previous section, and I'd segment, and I know I talk on this program a lot about having to have consequences for bad behavior. If you don't have consequences for bad behavior. that bad behavior repeats itself and gets worse. It is against the law to illegally enter this country. So you have adults that illegally enter this country. All right, they bring kids with them. You can't lock the kids up as a practical matter because mom and dad have decided to break the law in entering this country. So that's what they did. They separated the families. They took, I don't know, that in theory, that this is really much different than, hey, you, um, you, you raid a drug house on the south side of Milwaukee and you find mom and dad there and there's a bunch of guns and there's a bunch of money and there's a bunch of dope and mom and dad end up getting charged and you call the, the, fam- the child protection people and, and you separate the, the kids. The, they, they end up going, you know, somewhere where they're going to be held while mom and dad are going to jail. This is in many respects, it's the same sort of thing. It is unfortunate that they had to separate families in this fashion and i understand i saw those pictures as well you know they're separating the families and all but but why did they have to separate the families in the first place they did it because mom and dad came into this country illegally now you can argue maybe maybe whether or not you know we we shouldn't have arrested mom and dad for coming in now, the Trump administration was trying to do it as a way of creating a deterrent. We want to get the message out there that this is a big deal for us. We've got to try to get the border under control. And maybe reasonable people can agree or disagree about whether or not that was the best policy and things like that. Okay, that, that's fine. But to compensate and to essentially reward this bad behavior by paying out this type of money is absolutely mind-boggling to me. Jeff, enter the country illegally and become an instant millionaire. This will create a situation where millions more people will race towards the border. Well, you know, absolutely. You know, okay, but here's the other thing. Jeff, I think $400,000 is a small price to pay for what happened to the kids. Absolutely, they should get it. I don't know. I don't know. I guess that's that's the idea. And that's clearly what Joe Biden thinks. And that's clearly what I'm sure some people in the Biden administration think that, you know, we want to reward people who have engaged in this type of behavior. And we're going to make you, you know, instant millionaires come to America, violate the law. And, and here, 
be ready to get a, a great check. Now, I don't see how you make a case for this, given the fact that we've got so many people in this country who are, are struggling, who are following the law, who are following the rules. Now the idea is, wait a second, if I can violate the rules, I can walk away with a million dollars. And maybe maybe the kids, in fact, were traumatized by being separated from the parents. But who is to blame for that? Is it the taxpayers of the United States? No. Is it the policies of the United States? No. If the kids were traumatized by having to be separated from their parents, who is to blame? It's real simple. It's the parents. So if the kids have, at least in my opinion, a lawsuit, if the kids want to be compensated for the trauma that they went through by being taken into these some of these government shelters and being held, well, you know, they should hire lawyers and they should sue mom and dad for the money. Because the reason they got separated from mom and dad is because mom and dad committed criminal acts by coming into this country, period. $450,000 a kid. The world is gone mad. Now, will this ultimately happen? I don't know. The word that this is now leaking out, I think, is going to create a lot of issues. Candidly, you do something like this, and it pretty much, I believe, guarantees that um, Joe Biden is a one-term president, even if he were to run again, and it pretty much guarantees just a complete and total electoral disaster for Democrats in 2022, because although some people might think that this is a great idea, my guess is the vast majority of Americans are going to shake their head and say, it's just a world that gets crazier and crazier every day. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Just a couple final thoughts on our last conversation. Yes, there's a number of you who are texting me point out, yeah, Obama separated kids at the border, too. This Now, they, they didn't call it the zero-tolerance policy like Trump called it. But, yeah, this is... This has been going on for a long time. Now, Trump ended up ratcheting it up. And, and by the way, I'm getting, it's a couple texters. There's, there's the usual suspects that are out there saying, oh, this, you know, separating the kids is absolutely immoral and this is absolutely terrible and Trump should rot and you know where. And I mean, look, here, the, the bottom line behind this proposal and this policy is that what they were trying to do is discouraging people from coming into this country. And so what happened was, if you come in as an adult illegally, you're going to be arrested you're ch- and you're going to be prosecuted. Your children will be detained in a separate facility before being shipped to a shelter and eventually to a sponsor family. Again, I, this is in many respects, it is very similar to you, you bust into the drug house, like I was saying earlier, and you take mom and dad away because they're operating the drug house and the kids are held in separate facilities and then a shelter and then a sponsor family. That Now, you can argue for everybody who feels morally superior and just hates this policy and says this is human and Trump was awful for doing it, you, you that's fine. You, you can argue, I think, whether that's an appropriate policy or, or not. You can argue about that it accomplished the goal of perhaps deterring people from coming into this country, a, a goal which we've now completely abandoned as the border is completely and totally out of control. But that's a separate thing. It, it's one thing to say, okay, this was a this was a bad policy or it was an ill-thought-out policy or we think it was wrong. It's another thing to say, though, that you know we are now going to pay people $450,000 apiece because they chose to come into the United States in violation of this policy. If you want to rescind it, that that, that's okay. 
I mean, that's what elections are for. And, you know, Biden has made pretty much the decision to open up the borders. Go with God. He'll be accountable to that to the voters. And, you know, the people that support Biden will be accountable to the voters. And maybe they'll get thrown out of office. Maybe they won't. We'll find that out in the next election. But that's completely different from saying, okay, you come in in violation of the law at the time, and now we're going to reward you by giving you hundreds of thousands of dollars. How do you explain that to the people in this country, the the veterans that are living on the street, the people that are you know still that I, I'm told all the time that you know we need to get more help, we need to get more pandemic relief, we need to do more for working class families. How do you explain to them that you're giving four hundred fifty thousand dollars to a family that came into this country illegally, non citizens, and the kids got separated from them because of their actions, and now the government's going to pay them money. That's the bizarre aspect of this. All right, I was making, I was referencing this just a little bit earlier because you know Mike Spalding had it on the news, and I, I, I will say, it's the strangest story of the week, and it's one of those things where a picture is worth a thousand words, and and you can see this guy's picture. On, on pretty much any of the TV websites. I was going to send it out as a tweet, but I, I, I thought not. But um, if you were, okay, if, if you were to be looking at a, a mugshot and a list of a hundred different photos, and the question was, gee, pick the photo of the guy that you think's been charged with child sex assault, you would pick this particular photo. That, that's it. But, but here's the story, and this is the way Channel 12 reports it. And, and I, I've been reading this, and I keep thinking, what am I missing here? A Pewaukee man was arrested Tuesday and is now charged with multiple counts of sexual assault of a child, child abuse, and sexual exploitation. The criminal complaint says the investigation started earlier this year when a 12-year-old Racine girl and her family contacted police. The victim told police that James Wicked, 51, would come to her house and perform exams on her. Uh, the cops say it appeared that James was putting a professional front to his sexual assaults. He was convincing people that these were exams that were needed for professional reasons. The girl's parents told police that Wick was a family friend and that he asked to perform the exams as a way to keep some type of insurance certifications or get some type of insurance certifications. The exams turned invasive when she turned 12, according to the criminal complaint. The victim told Wick, police that Wick would have her take her clothes off and put on an examination gown. He would also have her remove her underwear. During an exam believed to be in April of 2021, the victim told police Wick used a clamp thing and said it hurt real bad. Okay, th- this is all this is all. It's incredibly weird. So you have a family friend who goes over and says, hey, I, I'm trying to get an insurance certification, so I, I want to do exams on your teenage or soon-to-be teenage daughter. It gets weirder. The victim, this would be the daughter, said her father was present when this happened and was using Wick's cell phone to record the exam, according to the complaint. The father admitted to recording this exam at the request of Wicht, who said he wanted it to show doctors for his testing. (laughs) The, the, The parents became concerned after the April exam. No kidding. All right, so I'm, I'm trying to picture this. Okay, so you have the family friend who says, hey, I, I wanna, 
I'm trying to get an insurance certification, so I want to conduct an exam on your preteen daughter. We're going to have her stripped down, put on a gown, take off her underwear. And by the way, Dad, I want you to film this while it is going on. I, I oh, okay. I, I look. I, I never had kids. I, I I understand. So so maybe my response is perhaps different than yours would be. But if somebody came over and said, "Hey, I, I want to do I I, I want to do exams. I, I want to be an insurance whatever. So here, let's get the, your pre-teenage daughter to strip down and you film this while I'm doing the exams." Okay. The first answer is going to be no. The second answer response is going to be to call the cops and say, I just had the weirdest darn conversation, and you don't know if other stuff is going on. Parents became concerned after the April exam. Um, let's see, they found a cell phone that had a video of the clamp exam described by the victim. Um, investigators believe he assaulted multiple children dating back many years. They're looking and trying to identify and speak to other possible victims. Th- this one, it's just... So bizarre on on so many levels. And when when I first saw this, I thought, okay, well, is this guy who's I don't know, is he babysitting or something? Is this something that's being done without the parents' knowledge or whatever? But but no, it appears that this was the way he operated, and that was, you know, here I'm I'm, I'm a family friend. I'm going to go over and I'm going to say to mom and dad, here I, I'm going to conduct an exam. Um, and then we're going to film it. Jeff, you're correct. There's no way, and you know what, that this would ever happen. I have two kids, and something is seriously wrong with uh, the intuition that the parents have. I, I mean, yeah, I just, what, what do you end up doing? Jeff, what could be going on with the father? Um, I, I, again, I, I don't I don't know what you do with that either. The The whole... The whole background of this just being just incredibly, incredibly strange. And uh, obviously, you know, they're, they're wondering whether or not this happened with more people. That's the theory. They're looking for other people who might have had the same sort of procedure because the bottom line is if you're doing it with one kid, you're probably doing it with a whole bunch of others. I don't know if that's the truth or not. I just know that by far and away, this is the strangest story of the week. He is in prison right now. He's in jail, held on $1 million bond. Um, while they look to see if there are other victims. And yes, we do refer to them as victims. All right, when we come back, let's take a deeper dive into what will certainly be the trial of the year, the Kyle Rittenhouse case. I have been talking to a number of people this week. I am stunned, absolutely stunned, by how divergent the opinions are. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. All right, a, a day or two ago, we we did something I had been intending to do for a while, but, but hadn't gotten around to, which is take some phone calls on the Kyle Rittenhouse case. The Rittenhouse case, the jury selection begins Monday morning in, in Kenosha. The trial, presumably, I don't know how long it's going to take to get a jury, um, but the trial will start sometime early next week, and the estimates are that it can run for two weeks. I'm not sure it's going to really run that long, but regardless, the, the, the case is finally starting. In any event, we I, I, I said the other day, 
that normally when I have, just because based on my experience and all the cases I've tried as a prosecutor and things like that, I normally have a pretty good idea of how a case is going to, to turn out. Doesn't mean I'm always right, but normally I, I, I'm right most of the time. This is a case that, that candidly, I think could go either way for a variety of reasons. And I, I expressed that point, and then we open up the phone lines briefly, and we're just flooded with phone calls. But on top of that, I, I've been getting texts, emails, all sorts of communications over the course of the last couple of days by people feeling incredibly strongly about this in my own personal life. I, it's, I have been amazed, and, and it, it sort of, it transcends, it really transcends political lines in, in many respects. I have just been amazed at, at how friends of mine just see this, this case in, in such diametrically different ways. And I thought it was worth today during the segment of the program kind of revisiting this in anticipation of what's going to start on Monday. This is not a whodunit sort of case that this isn't a gee you know do, do we have to prove who was it that burglarized that house and you know jeff's accused of doing that but jeff's got an alibi saying he was somewhere else this is not a, a whodunit it's also not a complicated paper case it's not like gee somebody was trying to defraud banks and they were filling out false bank forms and were they really false etc that, that's not it this is a, a it's a straightforward case based at least on on the facts. I mean, here, here's what happened. Third night of the Kenosha riots, and yes, I, I call them riots. First two nights, law enforcement let it get out of control. There was not enough law enforcement officers there to keep order. You had, what, 50 or 60 businesses that were burned. You had people that were injured. Things were out of control. The third night, and by the third night, law enforcement was starting to get stuff under control. They had more National Guard people there. They had more cops, and and they were dealing with this. But by the third night, what had also happened is you had a number of outsiders, non-law enforcement people, who were taken upon themselves to come to Kenosha to, quote-unquote, stand guard over you know various buildings that had not been damaged as of yet. So this third night, you've got a bunch of the protesters who are out for the third night in a row. You've got a larger law enforcement presence, and you have individuals who have kind of self if you want to call them vigilantes, call them whatever you want. But but they're they're in Kenosha. In many cases, they've got firearms themselves, and and they're there to protect businesses. Okay, so that's the background of this. Into this parachutes that then 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse, who um, he, he actually he had friends in Kenosha. He lived um, right across the border. So he comes with some of his, his friends. His stated expression in coming is to help protect property, but also he says he's got some medical training, so he wants to provide you know medical assistance. So he's, and everybody's seen the photos, he's he's parked outside of one of these businesses with a bunch of other people, and, and he's got the he's got the rifle with him. Around eight o'clock or so at night, when the curfew kicked in, unlike the first two nights, the police decide that they are going to, they're going to move the protesters. They're, they're going to clear them out of a park, and so they start moving. Kyle Rittenhouse, during that evening, had been kind of bouncing back and forth from in front of the, the building that he was, quote-unquote, guarding. And he'd been going back and forth um, you know, between there and other places, supposedly providing medical assistance or, or whatever. In any event, as the police start pushing people 
in. The police are pushing the, the protesters, rioters, looters, arsonists, whatever you want to call them. They're pushing them towards where Rittenhouse was. Rittenhouse had left his group, and so now he's kind of by himself, and he ends up getting separated from his group. And he's surrounded by a number of these protesters. At that point in time, what happens, I I don't know that there's going to be much factual debate about it. What happens is that one of the protesters or something starts chasing him, throwing, throwing a plastic bag or something at him. He starts running. He falls down. He ends up at one point in time, the guy who threw the allegedly threw the paper bag at him, he, he, he shoots him. Um, he then starts running. He falls down again. A number of people who've witnessed this first shooting start converging on on him. One guy's got a skateboard and swings the skateboard at him. Another person fires a gun into the air. Rittenhouse allegedly you know, ends up shooting both of those those people as as people gather around him. Now, th- those are essentially the facts. The Rittenhouse defense is going to be self-defense. They're going to argue that he was he was in fear of his life when he was essentially chased by this mob, this group of protesters or, or whatever, and that his actions were objectively reasonable because he feared for his life, he was being attacked, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The prosecution's theory is going to be he was a vigilante who came to Kenosha looking for trouble. He was essentially in a position where he was looking for somebody to shoot and that it was not a reasonable response to what had happened to him, whether it's being chased by the guy that had the the, the plastic bag that he threw at him or, you know, having the other people kind of descend on him to shoot them as he did was not a reasonable response. It was excessive. It was not permitted. This was not legitimate self-defense. That's what the the argument is essentially going to be, and a jury is going to have to decide. The prosecution bears the burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that the self-defense defense defense is not viable. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. As I say, I don't know that in recent times I've ever had a situation where what is essentially a straightforward set of facts, I mean, subject admittedly to some interpretation about, you know, what we're going through people's minds, but, but a relatively straightforward set of facts has elicited such a dramatic and heated response from people, ranging from he's a vigilante, he shouldn't have been there with that rifle. He's the one that started this, and of course he's a murderer, to, hey, you know, he, he was there because law enforcement had kind of lost control. This happened because he was descended upon by these protesters. Clearly, it's self-defense. And I will tell you, this morning, conversations with three separate people, again, different, and, and politics doesn't come into this, and I got all three of those opinions expressed in very strong terms. Well, of course he's guilty. Of course he's guilty. And then this is the clearest case of self-defense that I have ever seen. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I suspect that um, I'm going to be doing probably some commentary, certainly on the radio, maybe on TV over the next week or so on this. And I'm, I, I am legitimately curious. After, you know, over a year, this has been debated in the news, I'm legitimately curious how you see this. I tell you, I think it's going to be, I think it's a case that's going to go, could go either way. 
Um, I also think that um, prosecution, for people who think this is going to be a slam dunk case for the prosecution, it, it's not because there is there is an argument you can make about self-defense. Will that argument carry the day? What do you think? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. This is one of these cases where the facts. I think the Rittenhouse case. The facts really aren't at at issue. It's not a who done it. It's not a what was done. It's more like why was something done. And in that respect, I think it's absolutely interesting. So, all right, let's talk about this. Is this a case of self-defense or is this a case where, oh, it's just a slam dunk winner? Of course, this is a kid who came to Kenosha looking for trouble. He started it. He found it. And he needs to be held accountable. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Gary in Milwaukee. Hi, Gary. Hey, good afternoon. How you doing? Good. What do you think? Interesting subject. Well, I just feel like kid, the kid came from out of state with this weapon, right? I, I don't want to get into who started it, but the thing is, I think that this is a, you opening up a can of worms and a slippery slope is now, you know, and it sets a precedent. So when a state is having protests or whatever, and you have people from out of state start coming to your state with firearms, uh, I think that's, you know, I think that's opening up a can of worms. Like, I'm a I'm a proponent of the Second Amendment, served mm-hmm. 20 years in the Army as a warfighter, you know, and I, I'm a gun owner. But I feel like, me personally, I have no business going to Illinois with a firearm mm-hmm. because Illinois are having protests about anything. That's not my place. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, and it's not, it's not going to be a slam dunk. I don't know really what's going to happen. I'm interested to see. Yeah. But something needs to happen because you, you, you're really opening up a can of worms if, if nothing happens, because now you have people coming into all kinds of states with firearms. And, and Gary, let me take. Let me. Let me. And, and I understand your concern. Right? Your, your your big concern is: look, if he if he gets acquitted, does that mean that you now have citizens that can just kind of? Is it open season on protesters? Or then, from the protesters' perspective, is it open season on the people that show up? I let let me. You kept saying that he, that he came to he came from Illinois, and it's true. He, he lived right across the border um, with his mom. L- let me take that out of the equation for just a second. Let let's say that the the, the let's say that he, he was from Kenosha. Same same set of facts, but instead of coming from Antioch, he he lives in a suburb of of Kenosha, and he went down there. Would would that change your thinking in any way, shape, or form? He's seventeen. He's there with a gun, but but he's from Kenosha instead of from Antioch. So I guess my I guess my, my my thing is then can a seventeen year old legally own a gun? Can a can a seventeen right. legally possess a gun like that? I mean I know Wisconsin has an open carry, but is it is it lawful? Yeah, and that, it's it's interesting you raise that because that's that's kind of an open legal question right now because. You you can you clearly can for hunting purposes you know but, you know but and of course but he wasn't hunting you know so it, it it's it's very you know, thanks for call that that's another that's one of the legal issues that are out there is that I mean the prosecution maintains the position that he he wasn't legally allowed to possess the gun in the first place the defense says well well no if you look at the statute it, it's it, it actually 
it, he, he is legally allowed to have it. I, I don't know. I don't take a position on this. And maybe that's one of the things that's going to be determinative. I, I think, though, from the perspective of the jury, I, I think, candidly, one of the things that's going to end up happening here is um, they're, they're going to have to decide how they see Kyle Rittenhouse. I will tell you the other really, really interesting thing that's here is it's the question of whether Kyle Rittenhouse testifies. Um, defendants have an absolute right to be pre- or, or an absolute presumption of innocence, and they they cannot be compelled to testify at a trial. And the jury is instructed that if a defendant chooses not to trial, you not to testify, you can't hold that against them. And, and that's all well and good. At the same time, in a case like this, and I'm just speaking. I'm trying to put my lawyer hat on and understanding what the law is, but I'm also trying to think if I was a juror in a case like this, I, I would want to hear from Rittenhouse. If if Rittenhouse legitimately thought that his life was in danger and, and this is why he had to do that, you, you would you would think the defendant has no obligation to testify, but you would think that you know you you want to hear from him. Now the problem with that is you put him on the witness stand and it opens him up to cross examination, and there's a number of things in his background which might not come out at in the prosecution's case, but by testifying, he might open the door for. So that's going to be another one of these issues. See, a lot of times you can go in these trials, and I can tell you, there the the, the uh, in the George Floyd case, I said at the beginning, there was no way in God's green earth that the police officer was was getting on the witness stand. He he wasn't going to. I don't know what happens in the Rittenhouse case because if you're trying to convince a jury of self defense, it's it's difficult. I think to not impossible, but I, I think that you know jury's going to want to hear from the person who says, "Hey, this is why I did what I had to do." Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's talk to uh, Troy in Door, Door County. Troy, you're on WTMJ. Hey Jeff, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I, I'm, I'm kind of uh, old school. If you want to talk about this, uh, no nonsense. Kyle Rittenhouse killed two people, and to me, um, he's guilty. And I don't care if it happened in Illinois or Wisconsin. People have to start. We have to start making people accountable for what they do and what they say. And we're losing that in our country, I think. And giving people the right to say anything they want without, you know, any kind of uh, background or, you know, and, and guys with guns and the guy's a minor. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, he's out at a bar. You know, mm-hmm. what's that all about? You know, and I just really don't have a lot of patience for that. And I think. Uh, our country's losing a lot of our common sense with this kind of stuff. So that's kind of my take on it. No, good enough. Well, Troy, th- thanks for calling. That, that, I mean, a lot of people, you know, feel that way. Now, you know, and it, I mean, there, there's other sort of technicalities as well. You, you can't create a situation and then, and then use self-defense to justify it. L- l- let me give you an example in theory. Let's say that I walk into a bar, for example, and I, I go up to somebody and I pull out a handgun and I shoot them. Or I, 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 they've been, you know, fooling around with my wife or something like that. And so I, I shoot them. And, and then everybody else in the bar sees that I've shot them. And then they say, okay, we're going to descend. Oh, we, this guy just shot somebody in cold blood. Here, let, let's jump on him. Let's hold him for the police. And then as people are coming at me, for example, to try to disarm me, um, I, I shoot three more. Well, I, I can't, it's, 
it's you're not going to be able to use self-defense, you know, on a situation like that. Well, yes, I feared for my life. I feared that these three people were going to jump me after I murdered the guy in cold blood. So that's why I had to shoot them. Well, self-defense isn't going to work there because you created, you know, that that situation. Yeah, I might have been afraid that they were going to beat me. But the reason they were going to do it is because I'd walked in and shot somebody in cold blood. So, you know, that that's going to be one of the questions as that's out there as well. That, you know, after he shoots the first person and then other people start chasing him, all right, does, does he then have the right, gee, I was afraid that they were going to do something to me if they caught me. Well, okay, can, can I then shoot them because they're trying to disarm me and catch me because they realize I've shot somebody? It, that's one of the intricacies of the things that are out there. I, I just, again, I'm swamped with texts and I will tell you, and this is one of the things that's just so interesting. I, it, it's, I would say it's 50-50. I mean, I would say half of you, think that Kyle Rittenhouse is, if not using the word hero, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse was somebody who was there to do God's work and try to protect this building from these out-of-control looters, and, and he was the one who was being attacked and menaced by the group, and this was a reasonable reaction. And I would say the other half view Kyle Rittenhouse as a just a, a, a dangerous vigilante who came looking for trouble and and then, you know, is using self-defense as an excuse. The interesting, another interesting aspect of this is uh, that they're going to have to pick a jury starting on Monday. And, and a lot of people say, how are you going to be able to pick a jury? I mean, hasn't everybody heard about the case? Well, the, the standard, it's not whether you've heard about the case. It's because, you know, you, honestly, I, I can't believe if you're picking a jury in Kenosha. How are you going to find anybody that hasn't heard about the case? The question is, can you find people who, even if they've heard about the case, are, are open-minded, or at least say they're open-minded, and don't have a preconceived notion to the point that, you know, they'll be willing to let the, it's not that they haven't heard about it, but can you fairly decide the case based on the evidence presented in the courtroom? Uh, jury selection, they'll get them. I'm always amazed. They're, they're always able to get jurors who fit that criteria. In a case like this, might not be the easiest thing in the world, but um we will be talking extensively about this trial when it starts on Monday and uh, for a good part of next week. Stick around. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. I don't know what the scariest part of this story is. So Joe Biden is on his way to a big climate conference that's going to be held. He stopped off. He's in Rome for a conversation with the Pope. And he he runs into, um, he sets up a meeting with the president of France, Emmanuel Macron. Now, um, I think we've talked about this before. The United States pretty much screwed over France. Now, you can make an argument that they didn't do anything wrong in screwing over France, but they clearly screwed over France. France had an agreement to build conventionally powered submarines for Australia's Navy. Okay, And these deals had been in place for a long time, and they were going to generate an enormous amount of money because Australia was going to purchase these submarines um, from uh, France. So France was going to sell the submarines to Australia. Now... These the submarines were, were going to be, like I say, they, they weren't going to be nuclear submarines. And what else, first of all, what, what the West wants, the West wants Australia to take a more active role in trying to help contain China, you know, monitoring China and things like that. These conventional powered submarines 
don't have the distance that the nuclear-powered submarines have, and they, they don't have the ability to move in in a stealthy fashion and things like that. So they are inferior. So what happened is that without telling France that this was going on, the U.S. and Britain cut a deal behind France's back with Australia to sell them these these nuclear-powered submarines. And so France finds out that all of a sudden that they've been cut out of, of this, and they're, they're mad. They think you sabotaged our arrangement, you've cost us all this money, and this is not how... Um, this is not how, you know, friends and partners work. So France is upset and understandably upset. Now, it's you, you look at this deal and you say, OK, well, it's to the benefit of Australia and it's probably to the benefit of the world. We want Australia to have the, the best nuclear powered submarines that are around. And that's not what France is making. And that's not what they were selling them. So Australia gets submarines that were more are more suited for the purpose and the US and Britain get the revenue and and France gets kind of left by the side but okay that that's that's tough that's what happens in business but anyhow France is hacked off and Biden wants to try to make nice to France well the problem of course is we, we did screw them over <laughs> that's just that's just ended up what what happened so he he goes and he's having this meeting today and apparently he says well that the handling of this matter has been clumsy um it was not done with a lot of grace. I know that 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 part I, I guess is is probably true. Um, I'm not sure what you mean when you say clumsy. Um, it was it, it, when you say it was not done with a lot of grace. That's that's correct because they 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 screwed over France. I mean everybody involved in this knew what they were doing. It was a secret deal. Let's because France would have screamed if they had known in advance that the U.S. and Great Britain were going behind their back and were negotiating a deal. So it's true it was not done with a lot of grace. I don't know what the president means when he said it was clumsy. But here's here's the thing that I guess is scariest to me about this. He goes on to say, I had been under the impression long before that that France had been informed. That's the quote. I had been under the impression long before that France had been informed. So Biden is saying to the French president, well, I thought you knew about this. Now, clearly they, they didn't. Clearly the U.S. was going behind his back, which raises the, this this issue of is Biden completely and totally out of touch? See, that's the scary thing uh, about this. Not, not that the U.S. decided to go behind France's back, not that they did it with a lack of grace, but the President of the United States is saying, I didn't know that this was happening, which to me, if that's true, I mean, he, he's either not telling the truth because you wouldn't think it would be possible that the President of the United States would know that something like this, which was clearly going to cause a rift between one of your major allies, and, and by the way, has a huge thing to do with I mean, giving nuclear submarines to Australia so they can monitor China. That's, that's a, a big deal. And so apparently it's either the, the President didn't know that this is exact, was in the works, which to me would be incredibly scary if that's the case. He either, so he didn't know that this was in the works, which I think would be scary. Um, he knew and he forgot, which would be scary, or he, he just flat out lying to them about it. Because, and, and I, I gotta think that maybe that, that's the case because, um, if, if the president didn't know that this was in the works, if he didn't know that this would happen, if he didn't know that this had been communicated to France, 
if he's that clueless and that out of touch, you're, you're wondering, okay, who, who was really doing this and, and what, what else is it that he doesn't know? Now, my guess is he knew about it and just decided to go ahead with it, and now this is just a way to kind of apologize and try to save a little face. But if the President of the United States is, is really saying, I was under the impression that France had been informed, my question is, why were you under that impression? Who was it that gave you that impression? And are is that person that gave you that impression still working? Because, I mean, somebody then, Mr. President, wasn't telling you the truth if that, in fact, is a true statement. Don't know what really happened here. Maybe sometime after the end of the Biden presidency, we'll get a tell-all book from somebody close to him who, who describes it. But none of these scenarios are good. You're either lying to one of our allies or you legitimately didn't know about some real major thing going on. Nothing's good there. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Yeah, if you're a Packers fan, this is is not good news. Uh, their, their tight end Robert Tanyan, who was really emerging as as one of the one of the best tight ends in the National Football League. I mean, for years that the Packers have been trying to fill that that spot, and and Robert Tanyan really developing into that. Um, if you were watching the game last night, he he caught a pass wide open coming over the middle, um, thirty three yard reception. But at the very end, he he fell um, and he, and he buckled. He tried to make a turn, and his his leg appeared to buckle. He, he limped off the field, and um, the, the, I think the concern was that it was bad, and it is. Apparently, he's turned his um, he tore his ACL in the third quarter. That's that's an injury similar to what David Bakhtiari had, and you know Bakhtiari had it right at the end of last season, and he's still working his way back in. So this is an, an injury which definitely costs uh, the Packers their tight end Robert Tanyan for the, the balance of the season. They've they've really it's, you know it's amazing. I mean seven wins out of eight in, in eight games. It's it's been amazing given how hard they have been hit by the injury bug and you, you sort of look moving forward you, you, you know, plug players in and plug players in but um, you, you hope that Jairi Alexander their all pro quarterback cornerback gets back in but th- this was a huge blow and as I said at the start of the show I, I you know you can never be able to prove it but one of my big beefs about Thursday night football is the fact that I, I just think, as a general rule, it, it's too soon. These players play on Sundays, and then to have to turn around and three or four days later have to travel and have to play, I, I, I just seems to me on Thursday nights you have a disproportionate number of injuries. And part of it is I just think that in many cases the players haven't, their bodies haven't had the time to recover. They're out of their routine. Now, am I saying that that necessarily is why this guy you know, ended up um, – tearing his ACL? No. But if you look at what happens on these Thursday night games, it, it's clearly not in the interest of the players to have them on a regular basis having to be playing on such short notice. Monday is going to be a very, very interesting day. And and you're going to see this play out in, in New York City. But what's happening in New York City is sort of go- something that's going to happen, I think, in other places across the country as well. Because Today is the drop-dead deadline for public employees in New York City to be vaccinated. And New York City has taken a, a zero-tolerance policy. We talked about this a little bit yesterday. If, if you are not vaccinated, 
you are going to be put on unpaid leave. You're not going to be allowed to work. And then after 30 days, if you still haven't been vaccinated, you're going to be fired or they're going to say you've can you've voluntarily resigned or, or whatever. And th- that that's all well and good. And for some departments, for example, it, it hasn't it hasn't been an issue. For example, in the mayor's office, I'm looking, they say about like 95 or 96 percent of the workers have been vaccinated. Okay, that's fine. In the um, the, the historic preservation department, there's like 100 percent vaccinations. You know, people that presumably, you know, go out and make sure that we don't tear down old buildings or anything like that. Okay, and that's all well and good. But when it comes to Firefighters and police officers, the numbers aren't anywhere near as good. The estimates are right now that there's about 6,000 police officers who have not been vaccinated. Now, some of them probably will over the weekend, right? Probably. But there's still going to be thousands of police officers who are not going to be allowed to come to work. And can you imagine if all of a sudden, like you got 20% or 25% fewer cops on the street. Fire departments, they're already talking about how they think they might have to close 20% of the fire stations across New York City because these different firefighters have decided that they're not going to get vaccinated. So regardless of how you feel about the vaccination mandate, we've talked about this repeatedly in the past. Some people think that the government shouldn't be telling you that you have to do this and that employers shouldn't be requiring people to do it. Okay, and I respect that. I also respect the other side where people say, hey, get vaccinated. It's important if we're going to get our way out of the pandemic. Okay, I understand those sort of theoretical arguments, but this is this real world situation. You need cops. You need firefighters. And if, for whatever reason, the threat of losing their job has not been enough to force one out of every five firefighter and EMT in New York to get vaccinated, I I understand you've, you've made the threat. But how, as a practical matter, do you simply say, "Okay, we're we're gonna we're gonna get rid of twenty percent of you. You're 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 going to be gone." It's not like you can just. I don't know, turn around and say, all right, we're all right, we we're going to find we've just let go 6000 police officers here. We're going to where are you going to get those other 6000 police officers? Can you imagine what it's going to be like if this really does play out? And and maybe it won't be 6000, maybe it'll be 5000 cops or maybe it'll be 4000 cops. But can you imagine what this is going to be to people on Monday who call 911 because they've been robbed or they've been a crime victim of something? And we're told, well, normally the police time wait time is 15 minutes. Minutes. But by the way, we're down 20 percent. So get ready to wait a couple hours if we can get there. Or by the way, you know, my husband's having a heart attack. Can you send an EMT? Well, we'd love to, but we don't have as many as we used to. You, you these are the real world type of situations that are going to happen. And what we're finding now is it's moving from a theoretical sort of conversation about, gee, do we think we should do everything we possibly can to force people to get vaccinated even if they don't want to. All right, so let, let's do it. Let's threaten them with the removal of their job. That all sounds well and good until you're then confronted with this. And as I've said before, we're going to see this come to a head around here in a couple weeks when it comes to nursing homes that have now been told, and in many cases, like November 15th is the drop-dead deadline. And as I've said repeatedly, nursing homes have huge staffing issues now, and you have a disproportionately high number of employees who work at nursing homes who still are not vaccinated. So 
when when November 15th or whatever that drop dead day, date is, when it rolls around, you get a nursing home and you don't have enough people now to cook the food and to change the sheets and to work with the residents. What are you going to do when all of a sudden you have to get rid of uh, another 20% of those workers? What's going to happen is a lot of nursing homes are going to close. And that's the unintended consequence of drawing these lines in the sand. You're going to see it play out starting on Monday in New York City, and then there's going to be ripple effects all across the country. Well, when we come back, I want to talk about early voting and the World Series switches to Atlanta. If you haven't been paying attention, it's the Atlanta Braves. And some people are very upset that Major League Baseball hasn't forced the Braves to stop being the Braves. I'll explain and we'll discuss. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Melissa, this is my favorite crazy story of the day. And, and people think sometimes we make these things up. But I, actually, I was—I I want to talk a little bit about the Atlanta Braves in a minute. And one of our listeners said, oh, if you're going to be talking about that here, did you see the story that appears in USA Today? Uh, today, all right? Now, P- PETA, the people, uh, you know, uh, people for the ethical treatment yes, of animals, animals, right? Mm-hmm. The, the people folk, PETA folks. All right. Now, of course, the World Series is going on, so people are paying attention to baseball. All right. Now, I, I know that you're a casual sports fan, right? I am. Okay, yes. here, here's the quiz. At a, at a baseball stadium, you've got the starting pitchers, and then you've got the relief pitchers, right? And mm-hmm. the relief pitchers start the game like like Josh Hader. They, they have them out in the outfield in mm-hmm. a special area waiting for them to come in, you know, when, when they're needed to come in, right? And they all sit in this special area. Do you know what they call that special area? Well, there's the dugout. Okay, well, dugout is the one. Is the one is by that's by home plate. Okay, so it would be the bullpen. The bullpen. Look at the big brain on Melissa. You're right. The, the bullpen. It, that's and and I mean I, I've been a baseball fan since I was probably four or five years old. It, it's always been referred to as <clears throat> as the bullpen. That's where the relief pitchers are. I do not make this story up. USA Today, PETA, our friends, call for MLB Major League Baseball to change the term bullpen. Because they feel that is insensitive to cows. They want to change the term bullpen <clears throat> to the arm barn. Now, see, people are listening to us, and they, I am making this up. The world Here's the story. <laughs> so what do you call an actual bullpen? Do you still call it a bullpen? Well, I don't know. Here, let's see. The World Series, let, let's, you and I will read the story together. The World Series is underway, and the people for ethical treatment of animals are asking Major League Baseball to do one thing. Change the term bullpen to arm barn. In a press release issued yesterday, PETA called on Major League Baseball to get rid of the outdated name and change it to a suggestion that is more animal-friendly. Words matter. And baseball bullpens devalue talented players and mock the misery of sensitive animals. Words matter. And baseball bullpens devalue talented players and mock the misery of sensitive animals, PETA Executive Vice President Tracy Ryman said in the release. PETA encourages Major League Baseball coaches, announcers, players, and fans to change up their language and embrace the term arm barn instead. PETA said 
the bullpen references where bulls are kept before they are slaughtered. In Major League Baseball, the terms were relief pitchers warm up before the game. Okay, so first of all, can you imagine that this is your job? You are, what's their name, Tracy Ryman, and this is your job, is to come up with things like this that you put out as press releases under your name. No more bullpen, let's make them arm barns. So I I guess my take on this is, uh, you know, I can see if it's for... Uh, maybe testing on animals, something like that, right? You can be completely against that when it comes to products and stuff like that. And I get words have meanings and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, I don't know. This is just a bit, <laughs> oh, no, no, it's no. a bit over the top, right? No, no, no. no. Oh. Don't even have to say I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah so, okay. What, yeah. One of our texters nails this. Jeff, I'm pretty sure the cows don't care. <laughs> you know, <that's, laughs> well, and then you think about all the other phrases that we have, and I, terminology, like what about uh, being a guinea pig? Well, or, it, 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 you know it, what I mean? Good, like a, very good. Yeah. Or um, I, 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 beat see, a dead horse. I mean, there's like these phrases that we just have in, in the English vernacular that, well, I mean, I guess we could change all of them, but we all know what they mean. Well, that, that's, but again, this, see, this is, I mean, sometimes, like, look, I, I could maybe even understand. You use the beat a dead horse. Now, I, would I would I stop using that phrase? No, if I thought it was appropriate. But at the same time, okay, you could at least say, well, that's insensitive and it's cruel yes, and it's yes. creating symmetry. I, I, I'm willing to bet that of the entire universe, the tens of millions of baseball fans that are out there, there's not a single one that thinks that the term, ever thought that the term bullpen, <clears throat> first of all, is offensive to begin with, you know, because if that's where you keep bulls. Mm-hmm. But secondly, that, gee, we've got Josh Hader, who's making millions of dollars out in the bullpen. Oh, this is terrible to him. Could they change the name to Pigpen? <laughs> we're, I don't know. We're, we're gonna we're gonna send you out to the sty. Is is that it? Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess it, it's just I, when you th- see this is the thing that boggles my mind about so much stuff. That uh, let's even talk about the area of animal cruelty. And I'm I'm a dog lover. I know you're a cat. I'm lover. a cat lover. Absolutely. Right. Uh, so uh, there there are so many legitimate issues. Mm. If you want to talk about the issues of animal cruelty that that you could be concerned with in in life that you could be upset about, look, this is this is wrong or, or whatever. Pick whatever that issue is. And, and instead of like trying to channel your efforts into something positive that normal, rational, non-crazy people would be able to say, "Hey, yeah, I mean maybe they maybe they shouldn't be using animals in this particular type of experiment or whatever. Pick whatever your issue is." They're sending out press releases saying words matter, so we can't call a bullpen a bullpen. And I understand. I'm with you. I feel like, you know, if you're against people using uh, leather, right, you want to use some other material. I get that. If you are against uh, products that use animal testing, I get that because that, you know, directly affects the animal. Uh, This word, you know. That doesn't really. <laughs> and, and again, if, if you know, if you think you've got a crummy, I wonder. I have no idea how much PETA pays this person to sit there, and you're the one that's going to come up with this. <clears throat> Here's a text, Melissa. Jeff, I grew up on a farm. The bull pen is the place where the bull was kept before breeding. The bull didn't mind being there. <laughs> you know, that's, <laughs> the, the, I'm the sure bull, he didn't. Right, the, the bull was. Hey, this is the day I get to go into this that is, bull uh, pen. My best here. day, <laughs> best day ever. When when do we go back? In any event, our friends from PETA are back. They want to change the name of bull pens to arm barns, and, and maybe you know, okay, we're we're from Wisconsin. It's the dairy state. I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe instead of just having these things be open, maybe you could have you know stylish 
just little barns and things like that out there where the where the players recreated. I mean, I, I guess I, I think that's a little ridiculous, but if that you know makes everyone happy, I, I don't know. No, I, just, I, I don't. <laughs> bottom line is, I, I think the weird. texture's right that the cows don't care. Yeah. When we come back, all right. As long as we're talking about baseball, political correctness, and changing names, the World Series moves to Atlanta tonight. You know who plays in Atlanta? The Atlanta Braves. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Melissa was going to stick around, but she's too busy bringing home the bacon to stay. See, oh, can't say that. Peter will be upset with that as well. This week's sponsor for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase, presented by Great Midwest Bank, is Ridgetop Exteriors. This is the final day of the fall version of this. We will be back next spring, specializing in roofing, siding, and windows. Do not miss out on the Ridgetop Advantage. Contact Ridgetop Exteriors today. Give them a call, 414-244-9416, or visit them at RidgetopExteriorsMKE.com. All right, in the world of political correctness, there has been pressure brought on various sports teams. The team formerly known as the Washington Redskins football team is no longer the Washington Redskins. They don't know what they are yet, but they are the Washington football team for the moment. The Cleveland Indians have decided that next year they will be something other than the Cleveland Indians. The name they've chosen is the Cleveland Guardians. Unfortunately, as I was telling you about yesterday, there's already a Cleveland Guardians roller derby team that has that name trademarked. And apparently the Cleveland Indians in Major League Baseball tried to avoid, tried to go around that and, and get past the trademark thing, and it hasn't worked out. So, I mean, I think Guardians is a dumb name for a baseball team, but who am I to say? But it, it, regardless of whether you feel it's a dumb name or not, they apparently stole it from a pre-existing Cleveland team. They're going to have to work something out, or they won't be the Guardians. But meanwhile, while the Indians are no longer going to be the Indians, and the Redskins are no longer going to be the Redskins, the World Series, Game 3 today in Atlanta, and as we know, because the team moved to Atlanta from Milwaukee, they are the Atlanta Braves. And if you watch the game tonight, there will be a point in time when the Braves do something good on the field, stage a rally, score runs, whatever. And the forty to 50,000 fans at the stadium will stand up in unison, and they will do that chop. Right. You know, they'll they'll do the the Indian chop, the tomahawk chop back and forth and they will celebrate and people across the country will be appalled that the Braves, number one, continue to be the Braves. Number two, that they continue to use Native American imagery and number three, that they do the, the chop. Now, Rob Manfred, who is the commissioner of Major League Baseball, he's unpopular in a lot of circles, but he's particularly unpopular in Atlanta because he pulled the All-Star game from predominantly largely black Atlanta and sent it to largely white Denver, hurting Atlanta's small businesses that are predominantly minority-owned. He did it because, well, they didn't like what was going on with the new Georgia voting laws, despite the fact that the Georgia voting laws are less restrictive in many cases than the laws of, like, New York State, where Rob Manfred lives, or Delaware, where President Joe Biden comes from. But anyhow, Manfred is getting questioned about, what you know, why are we letting them be the Braves? And he says, well, look, here's the deal. Baseball is regional, and in Atlanta, the the Native American community is wholly supportive of the Braves program. 
And it's kind of interesting because the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, which is the largest local tribe in the Atlanta region, does in fact have a long-standing relationship with the Braves. Um, they are, as a matter of fact, they're a, a corporate sponsor of the the Braves. The head of the tribe, their principal chief, his name is Richard Sneed, he said, hey, you know, we're, we're proud of our relationship with the Braves, and we view the team as a platform to tell the story of Cherokee culture. They um, said, you know, every year the Braves have a, a night that honors us. He said tribal elders are treated like royalty. Um, he said, they said, well, what about the, the chop? And they asked him, he said, look, uh, the chop, in my opinion, is inoffensive. And by people focusing on it, it distracts from the big issues, longstanding and complex issues facing Native Americans, like extreme poverty, unemployment, substance abuse, and educational gaps. So in other words, the, the, the head of the largest tribe in the Atlanta area is saying, nothing to see here. We don't think there's a need to change the name Braves, and we're not bothered by the tomahawk chop gesture. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If it's okay with the largest tribe in the Atlanta area, does that end the discussion? Should it then be okay with everybody? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, tonight, if you are watching the World Series, I guarantee you there will be a portion of time in the game when the Atlanta fans, 40-plus thousand strong, stand up and they start chanting and they start doing the, the tomahawk chop. And there will be people all over the country who are offended in the extreme. Um, here, for example, here, here's a text. And, Jeff, I don't have a problem with using Native American imagery in sports as long as local tribes are okay with it. That being said, I personally feel like the tomahawk chop is one of the most offensive things I've ever seen by a bunch of white people. Now, it's kind of interesting because, again, the the chairman of the principal Indian tribe around Atlanta, he, he addresses this. And it's kind of interesting story I'm looking at says, look, here, here's the deal. He said, I, I understand some people in the Native American community see the chop as problematic. But, you know, he said... He said, I, I don't need to hear from outsiders who are offended on our behalf, which which I do think is one of these sort of interesting things when you kind of look at the counterculture. A lot of times the, the people that have the objections are are not the people who have standing. It, it's it's not the people. I, I mean, if, if you're a Native American and you find this to be offensive, oh, OK, that that's fine. But if you're, I don't know, some wealthy you know, uh, Park Avenue patron who's driving around in your Volvo and you're offended on behalf of Native American people, the question is, okay, is that really any of your business? And, and that's what I, I think it's so interesting here. The, the, the chief of the, like the largest Indian tribe is saying, look, I, I get why some people are offended, but you know what? I, I think this, it, it doesn't bother me at, at all. We've got a, a great relationship. I think it's inoffensive. We've got a great relationship with the Atlanta Braves, and we're intent on continuing that relationship. Here's a text. Jeff, isn't it sad that people don't have better things to do than worry about dumb things like Indian names or bullpens or things of the like? Well, I, again, I understand that words do matter, and I understand that you know people can be offended by things. And candidly, I, I get the idea, I get the argument about redskins, and and you can argue that it's not intended to be an offensive term. But but 
something like Braves is a much more generic sort of term. And I guess just like if you look at the Florida football team, you know, who are the Florida Seminoles, right? And they, they use, there's all sorts of Native American imagery. Well, I mean, they, they've made longstanding relationships with the Seminole Indian tribe in Florida. And they, they've got an ongoing relationship and the tribe has no problem with it. So if the tribe has no problem with it, and the university has no problem with it, and the immediate community, by and large, has no problem with it. Why should somebody in New York City have a problem with it? Why should somebody in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, have a problem with it? And I guess that's kind of how I look at the stuff out of Atlanta as well. If the local Indian tribes, the local Native American groups have no problem with it, as expressed by their majority of opinion, well, okay, then why should anybody else be you know, bothered by it? It is going to be interesting to see what happens tonight, because even though the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred, has stood up for Atlanta and the decision to continue to be the Braves and to continue with the tomahawk chop and things like that. He's still the guy that pulled the All-Star game out of Atlanta in what was essentially a a nod and a bow to woke woke culture and political correctness. And my guess is the folks down in Atlanta aren't going to forget about that anytime soon. All right. When we come back, John McCure will find out what he has on his mind on Wisconsin's Afternoon News.